This is the Faith Ventures Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, telling stories of Christians doing business for the glory of God. If you appreciate this program, support the nonprofit work of LCI by donating at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. And if you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. Welcome back to Faith Ventures. I'm so pleased today to welcome our very special guest, Mr. Aaron Ginn, who's a longtime friend of LCI. He is the co-founder and president of what was formerly called the Lincoln Network, now the Foundation for American Innovation. He's also currently the co-founder and CEO of HydraHost. And we are going to have a fun time talking about this. This is a really funky business. I've been learning a little bit about it. And I am so excited to have you here, Aaron. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, as we always want to start off in Faith Ventures, tell us a little bit about your career journey. Like, how did you kind of get into, I mean, you've had a pretty varied existence thus far and a bunch of different stuff. Tell us kind of what has your journey really looked like and how have you kind of gotten to where you are today? Yeah, so the easiest way to me to explain like why I decided to start things I'd done. So like I'm on my fourth company is that they, I think starting companies to me is a, like a work of art for the public. And, you know, I think people like, you know, I'm really into design. I'm really into sort of culture and history and societies. And which is why you know, I've been to over 50 countries in the world. And I go to one new country every year. Is that I think that the way in which humans interact with other humans is one lane could be like one of the most destructive things. And also another lane could be one of the most like redemptive things. Yeah. And companies to me have always served as a means of like building a vision of the future that I think is redemptive. And so it's like trying to make an argument about how should we live as humans. So I've always followed a path that was like more or less what I was interested in. And it wasn't necessarily the path that was going to make me the most money. In fact, like many of my best friends have have said that to me that like there are many opportunities in my career that I could have worked at places that are me now infamous for their own ethics or morals. But I would have definitely made a lot of money. Yeah. And in my own life, like I, I want to live the way I want to live. I don't really want to have another person try to define those particulars of how I live. And I essentially like look for the Holy Spirit and the wisdom from the word to create boundaries and guidelines for like what that means. And so that has led me to live in different cities. It also led for me to start different types of companies. But all of them kind of intersect with like public policy questions about everything from free trade to like what's the impact of innovation on the society. Because I think that that's where there needs to be more aggressive strategies towards innovation but also having a view that like you're actually working on something that has a consequential impact in society. And most of those, like you could say double bottom line businesses, even though like none of mine are like that, but you know, that is typically a more leftist or secular orientation to running companies. But every company that I have started and run definitely follows a Judeo-Christian framework and a freedom-oriented framework. And the product themselves typically intersect with that with a strong loop. But you know, there's no example like on Hydros, there's no obvious clear example of the fact of like we are those particular things. I would say like we're definitely pro-West. But but that's like sort of all intentional is that, you know, if you want to make money and you want to like be successful, I think how you do it is much more meaningful in the end of like even if you maybe attain less amount of wealth, you certainly will have much more fun. So, you know, Elon, I would say, is a great example of like he's my favorite entrepreneur that like basically does what just he interests him. Yeah. And he's been very successful at that versus I know a lot of other entrepreneurs yeah, basically built something that didn't personally interest them, but they made a lot of money. And every dollar that they earn, for some reason, matters less to them than an equally rich or even maybe slightly less rich person. 
but sure. earned it the way that they wanted to earn it. And then every dollar just means something completely different to that person. So I, I decided to follow sort of my own path and my own drumbeat because you know, I was going to be an entrepreneur. I didn't want to actually do things how other people say I'm supposed to do or other businesses that's to start that I wanted to kind of do what I wanted to do. And that that was going to be the way that I sort of paint a picture or make a sculpture that other people can view. Well, I love the analogy of building a business is like doing artwork because there's so much interesting kind of implications therein is for one, being kind of a bit artisty myself, but also realizing there is an art and a science to creating beautiful businesses. And there, because mm-hmm. there's sort of an art and a science to serving others. You kind of have that mentality as well. And like, what sort of beauty do you see in that creation process? I think the most direct level is the fact that like you're providing a job to somebody. And the most a person will spend in a lifetime is that work. And I don't believe that like work is a place where you learn values that you should have learned at your house. Like, you mm-hmm. know, I can't make a child become an adult at work. Like, this is not going to happen. But I do believe that you can maybe like reconcile people to a redemptive view of work and make people like sort of excited, but also like do something really hard. And I think that's kind of the difference between, you could say like horrible work environments that are oriented towards like startup culture that are unhealthy and you work hard versus like healthy and work hard. And ultimately in the day, like based on the creation mandate and like how the fall happened, everything that is good and everything that is redemptive requires energy. And I think that a lot of people, a lot of Americans should say, have been told different things about success just in the last like two generations, I would say, that are untrue and based on envy. Yeah. And instead they're drawn to pastimes and activities or vocations that are highly egotistical and are not lasting. Being an influencer is not lasting. It has no permanence to it. And it's highly, you know, obviously like vain. And and there's no like there's no no orientation to like building a company. Like being an influencer is not a company. And of course like I am an influencer in, in some circles like but like that's like a hobby. That was the side effect of everything that you're doing, not the goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, I know a lot of people who actually are influencers, which I guess you could say the next generation of actors, but at least like actors had like checks on their lives. Like, you know, they yeah. had a producer, <laughs> they had studios, yeah. they had an agent, right? Influencers don't have none of that, like, which is why it's kind of like they're so narcissistic about their patterns of their life. They're like a worse form of public intellectual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think it's there's something about power that infiltrates itself into politics that you also see in influencers. Yeah where there's a, an extreme lack of self-awareness. And then they also, like I think it creates a pathological self-destructive cycle that yep. turns them into something that they didn't know who they were. Because I've seen you know, both actors and politicians and influencers go up and go mm-hmm. down, right? And when they were up, it was just like, you know, in terms of the cycle of their, you know, their, their intention, you can say like how influential they are, political to whatever, they turn into a different person. Yeah. And... I don't necessarily know if that's a, like a, some people say like what's drawing people into politics or being an entrepreneur or something like built into their biology. You know, some innate programming that they have. I would, I mean, I would say I don't, I don't fully know, but I would say that, that there is definitely something that happens behaviorally when people interact with power that mm-hmm. changes their mindset on how they view human beings and their sort of purpose in life. And, and, and that's one reason why I have sort of chosen the path of like how I've decided to be a public intellectual was around basically specific moments in culture that I felt like I needed to say some particular thing. Like, you know, yeah. I don't comment on every little thing that happens in politics. Like I don't comment on every little thing that happens in tech. 
So like I partic- I generally pick like one issue that I'm going to be like really hot and heavy on. Right now it's on basically masculinity and ending nice guy syndrome. So yep. like the, and before that obviously it was COVID. That's what made me like super infamous and famous in media. Yeah. And, and but those are things that I, I, you know, I felt that were, I had a unique contribution that I could say and a unique skill set that I could like sort of come together and go that direction. But, you know, I think that the public intellectual space or the influencer space is, you know, it's hard pressed for me to say that, that you're being an entrepreneur and, and like being, building a company, why I consider that like public art and why it's redemptive public art is that you're building a group of people, a corporation that is trying to, in, you know, instill values and a future of how society should work. And you're building a lasting, you know, leverage in enterprise value based mm-hmm. on those values that can like go beyond, you know, your sort of own, you know, your own arc, your own arc and your own life. And that to me is much more important than like having a foundation that has existed as long as it has is a great blessing. Cause you know, I'm just like on the board now and to see other people take it on and continue the vision is what's lasting about that. And it's what actually creates some permanence versus, you know, whatever thing that a Gen Z or Gen Wire is like interested in and, you know, becomes like YouTube famous yeah, it's like, I still don't really see how that creates permanence. Yeah, it's so interesting to kind of consider, you know, these different kind of spheres in which people can operate in order to create something, you know, kind of differentiating the idea between like, there's such a real artist is way closer to a person starting a business than, than someone who is an influencer or a politician mm-hmm. or even to an extent, dare we even call it the public intellectual types mm-hmm. who are, there, there are functions for those types of, of publicly facing, dem- demonstrating intellectual ideas and whatnot, but, but not in this. But that's not what an influencer is. That's not what, you know, a politician is doing. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it's really interesting to kind of consider the, the kind of spheres or, or how those intersections of the Venn diagram work. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I don't know if I've heard, ever really heard that before, but I find that really fascinating the way you've explicated that. Yeah, and there's also a difference between like being someone who writes books Mm-hmm. Being somebody who like is actual, like he's an intellectual that like, you know, like a Thomas Sowell, right? Yes, Who's had exactly. significant impact all over the entire world. Yeah. Uh, or like, you know, theologians or people like that. They typically they're associated to like an actual institution, like an educational institution. Yeah. And it's typically not about themselves, right? Like, you know, Thomas mm-hmm. Sowell isn't right about how awesome he is. And, and, you know, like versus like a social media influencer, it's literally just ego. The personality drives it. Yeah, yeah. There, there's nothing really substance, like you know, anything beyond just the person. Like, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's where certainly people can parlay into something more meaningful. But generally speaking, like for everyone that transfers over into something more meaningful that like, uses that influence, like say like George Peterson, um, yeah. you know, you have a hundred other people that just you know sell you know meal delivery kits and and other sort of advertising on on their platform, and that's it. So you, you've done the starting up of something before in the form of the Lincoln Network, now FAI. Mm-hmm. And then you've, you've parlayed that, if you will, into doing other things in the tech sphere. And you have this new business called HydroHost. And, and I'm kind of curious how you got to that point. I've seen you talk about it in, on LinkedIn and elsewhere as like the bare metal marketplace and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You're dealing in GPUs and hardware. How did you yep. kind of get to the point where you started this up and what kind of motivated you? How did you come to that decision? Yeah, so, so we started the company with the goal of creating like agnostic infrastructure. And so at first we started on this 
kick called like Neo Virtualized Machines. So that's like VMs. Yep. So we started like trying to build towards that and like building an agnostic VM framework so that people could move, you know, workloads between clouds. And what we saw there was that there was a technology challenge that, you know, basically we didn't have enough runway to help solve. And that the margins of that resolution were small. So like a lot of risk, not a lot of reward. And, and so then we, we started playing other rounds, our other layers of the infrastructure stack and, you know, going down sort of stack to uh, higher sort of margin businesses and places that like lacked innovation, but had some sense of like where the market was like leaning into. So we started messing around with different types of bare metal provisioning softwares about a year ago. Because so we have a hypothesis that like, okay, well, if the higher tops of like, in terms of like the, the virtualized layer is low margin, high, high investment, and so like low return, down the stack, theoretically, we'd have sort of the opposite where it's like, you know, it's, it's, it is a you know, commodity in terms of like bare metal as commodity, but there wasn't a lot of innovation going on there because like, you know, sort of like all the companies were going upstream. So it's not to go downstream. Well, the idea of like maybe it was like less competitive and like there was more opportunity for innovation that could actually move the ball down the field. And then what we found was that actually there was, but it was going to be slightly different, like which is that with this new type of computing that was coming online, which is like parallelized GPUs computing, graphics cards, the, the infrastructure needed to shift. And that the people who needed parallelized computing, advanced computing, high-performance computing, everyone say it, basically were interacting at the rawest level of the web infrastructure and the internet. So they basically were not, virtualization is like very low-cost, lots of software to basically make it cheap to like run a bare metal machine. So you typically don't interact with a bare metal machine. So we decided to like, well, how do we make the bare metal machine as cheap and effective and as fast as possible to get so if people who are building virtualization to have something cheaper that they can use, right? And then actually that customer would be looking for more agnostic tooling because they don't, they're trying to find the best price and the best location to actually run bare metal machines. So that's like kind of created the transition and we got looped into this GPU way because we we have a software that is basically like an easy button or a Shopify for data centers. So you install our hardware device in your data center and it automatically provisions every single machine to be sold easily to the public. And that before would it be like you know a six month long project with lots of different softwares and custom engineering. And so we built this little like widget that can like go into you know, the size of like a laptop. They can you know sell thousands, thousands of servers to the public, and and that cuts out a lot of steps. Also, lowers a price for people. And this new GPU wave, like everybody wants machines now, and there's a massive shortage. And so that's how we kind of like crossed over into basically a market that like I didn't really intend to at first go into, but it's like the customer that needed it the most were like those who are looking for a shortage, which was you know the advanced computing, high performance computing stuff is like in shortage right now. Rather than sort of commodity metal, and and so yeah, we we serve as a a GPU marketplace. So you come and you put in like you know requests for an A100, H100, RTXs, A10s, and all of our suppliers are 100 you know all over the world, and and they just bring the supply to the marketplace, and they run our they run our software, and and it makes it super easy for everybody to who is like a data center. Data centers are not good at software. They're not good at uh, any form of like virtualization. So, and this is why they sell to public cloud because they handle that whole layer. So we basically make it super easy for them to cut out the middleman. And so you're getting GPUs at wholesale prices, right? It's like a Costco for GPUs. And yeah, so that's what we're building. And ours is like we launched, we have lots of customers. 
but we you know we're we're going to be with the goal of our company now after done like iterations is to be the, the single place you go if you want to buy anything that's like in a co-location facility uh, and that that co-locations facilities around the world are using our software because it makes it super simple for anyone building a platform building a cloud company building any type of product that needs cloud just interact and get servers and never have to go make a colo, make a contract, set up a rack, do security, all those things. They don't have to ever do that again. So that's so that's the, the vision that we see in the future is that the that the base layer of the infrastructure of the internet, like which is a server, that you should be able to get any server in the world within seconds rather than, you know, months. Like that's that's the goal. That's wild. I mean, just to consider like you're cutting out so much time from, you know, your customers uh cycles of, of getting things spooled up and running and in business. So I'm curious, to, as you were developing, you've, like, you've talked about the development of this idea a bit. Did and what kind, of, what kind of challenges did you face there that really, you know, kind of perhaps were un- unexpected or really kind of required you to draw upon new sets of skills and things that you didn't have before? Well, I knew nothing about hardware before I started this. No. So, <laughs> so that, that was one. That's one. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And like understanding that the internet is actually run on like physical things, right? Yeah. It's not just like, oh, it's just not magic. It's not like sky magic, right? It's actually run in boxes like that exists yeah. somewhere that takes power, right? So that was a whole layer of like new information and knowledge and like wisdom I had to gain. And, you know, for my co-founders, this is a second venture back company. This is my first being CEO. And so like that was a whole new experience around like fundraising and like how to manage like a company that is you know, burning money versus like company is just profitable from day one. It's yeah. a whole like kind of different mindset shift. You know, being able to like figure out like how do you actually manage fast growth? How do you, you know, manage clients under that? Like what sort of you have like you know people you report to which are investors, like mm-hmm. that whole is a whole sort of layer of skill set. So the you know, the intensity of like venture back businesses is that you know you're trying to compress five years of work down to two years, which is why people give you money is they expect, you know, you're, they're, pay, they're, they're paying now cheaper than five years would be worth more. And yeah, and it's, and it's also like, you know, it's a challenging environment really for anyone in tech because, you know, we have interest rates near 8% on a retail basis. Like that means that, you know, your cost per cap, your cost for capital is like very expensive, which means yes. therefore your price goes down. So of your company. So like that's a whole sort of new thing because I've only worked in tech in a zero interest rate environment. Uh, <laughs> And, and so, like, this is like a whole new sort of world about expectations about what you have to deliver as a company to you know, to sort of like continue to receive investor capital. That's yeah. That's can't imagine. Like, I've also been you know observant at least of those virtually zero interest rate environments now in the startup for mm-hmm. some time, and to even consider that now it's like, oh my gosh, it's going to be just going to be wild. But it does mean that you have to. You know, for instance, pick projects that are really going to be you know worthwhile, as opposed to and, we have you know even historically seen in tech of, of some wild and crazy ideas that you know just are that they're they're not they're not going to last. Isn't yeah. Uh, so, so there's a sense in which you know high interest rates have a virtue too, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. So, do you find? I guess let's kind of shift over. Let's let's uh let's kind of take all of this and begin to kind of tease out. Where has where have your your you know faith commitments really played a, a significant role in both the philosophy of building this company and what you're you know what you're looking to in the future toward both yourself personally 
and what you want, you know, the, the end result of, uh, of this work to be. What kind of challenges yeah. have that, has that looked like? It, what would you well, like to I, I mean, I, mean I, I think there, there's always a hard challenge when, you know, you are a person that is trying to follow Jesus and like how that intersects with like an intense working environment, like, you know, startups and that like what you do now you make decisions. So like, I think it's this, this line between like caring, caring, caring yourself as a person of like integrity and character rather than, I think, I think a lot of Christian execs carry themselves as if like their dependency of the judgment of like whether or not they're a good Christian or bad Christian is like how nice they are to people. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that that needs a shift for particularly for a lot of men to be focused on like being a person of, you know, dignity and chivalry sort of more traditional values around like, you know, being basically a knight and that you orient your faith around that. And like, that's how people perceive what it means to be a Christian. I think that that's like much more appropriate because within those things is like, so how do you know if you are a man of integrity, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a both a statement of a being person of strength and being person of grace, right? And, and I think that that's where the, the line on like how you do to run a company from like a Christian walk and a Christian perspective, because you want people in a company to respect you. Like you don't want them to yeah. love you. That's like complete, you know, bastardization of like the, the spheres of influence and like it's outlined in scripture about like, you know, the, the dominion of different parts of, of God's law applies to different relationships. You know, like the, the, the idea of like, even the basic idea of submission was obviously key to scripture a submission to a pastor is very different than like a relationship to based submission yeah. or submission to your parents. And, and I think that that's where there is a, a disconnect, I think, between a lot of the Christian leaders, Christian executives, is that there's an expectation that like the, the, the witness of the faith is based on how sentimental people are. Driven. And, and, I, and I would think that like, you know, I'm almost definitely people in my company have been scared of me, which has been interesting feedback. But I don't think anybody ever says that like, it's more of like a scared of being, dis, you know, it'd be disappointing, Aaron, right? Or like, I'm, everyone would say, like, the number one, like, word in our 360 feedback stuff that people say about my manager style is like, Aaron always respects me, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's like the key about how you actually try to, try to, to live into your faith because, because the, the, the Bible is not a designed or intended to be the complete history or the complete knowledge of what it means to be a human being. Yes, it, it is is a story of God's love for His glory, like it's his, into the arc of Him redeeming creation, which we're a part of, for His betterment, like isn't for His glory. So that's it. But the, the only point of what He's trying to do is not trying to tell you how to run a company. He's not trying to tell you how to like fix a car. Like, and I think the overtrapolation of Scripture to stretch it to answer questions that are designed to leads to these like really weird cultish behaviors or like sort of irrationality, versus like the arc is to tell that story. And so the the inference of like the you know, being reborn again as Christian with the Holy Spirit, the intention of that, right? Going back to you know Jeremiah thirty one thirty three, right? In obviously other verses like Isaiah and Ezekiel, is that you're supposed to be adopting the character and and the behavior of God. So God is not here, or like you know getting here for me and the world and creation to make a theological robot that's not responding to the ministerial needs of people in front of him. Jesus certainly didn't do that. And I, and I think that there's like this, this weird projection about Jesus' behavior in the Gospels as if he was like referring to a book 
of like, okay, in this moment, I'm doing these things. And in this moment, I'm doing those things. So like, <laughs> yeah. like, like he is, he's literally meeting people where they're at and mm-hmm. pointing them to truth with the hope that that act of love will cause a conversion moment for them to realize and unveil them, right? He's always unveiling, like that's the thing about that sin and humanity is that God's created order is true now. The question is whether you notice it or not. That's as you know, in, tr- in terms of yeah. like Romans, 9, in that, Romans 1, 19 through 20. So the act is just unveiling. That's all you're doing, right? Like you're not creating, you're not like trying to spurn something on. All you have to do is unveil, right? Because people, that's why we have obviously the parable of the blind man, right? Is that people who think they know, don't know, right? And people who, who know they don't know are the ones that can see, right? And, and then there's obviously the famous C.S. Lewis quotes about the sun, right? By, 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 it's not that I believe in the sun because I see it, mm-hmm. but by, by seeing it, I can see everything else, right? Yeah. Like that's what it means to like be a Christian and, and like live in the world is that he's given you the spirit to give you the wisdom to live, right? And, and building that trust bond with God that like, you know, you always check according to the word. But the point is like he wants a relationship with you to mature you. And hopefully you don't need to constantly go back to scripture to tell you, I need to be a good person. I need to be kind. I need to be honest, right? Like the fact is you can take that and we apply it. Like what does it mean to be kind when you're trying to fire somebody? What does it mean to be honest when you're dealing with a customer and you're trying to sell to them, right? These are all things that have like, that what I think what creates really terrible advice that I've read. And I don't even read business books anymore because they're so awful. And but like, I definitely, I definitely don't read Christian business books. I mean, you know, if it's, if it's a biography, because some people think of business books, biography about a businessman, I read those. But like, but most of the Christian business advice is just terrible because it's, it's not realistic. It doesn't live in any form of like practical reality. And it's delusional. It just like, tries to take these examples from the gospel and, and like live in this, like what they, what they view as a redemptive organization when it's just setting himself up for failure because it doesn't meet people where they're at. And that's a key aspect of what it means to be a minister, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have the gospel, which is objective, and a minister, which is subjective, right? That's why Jesus applies the gospel subjectively, right? Pharisees this, you know, beggar this, woman at the well this, blind men this, right? Like all of it's still true, right? Because they're all diamonds of the fact like, you know, that God is a yeah. diamond in terms of like lots of reflections, but he's still consistently a diamond, right? that he's all projecting truth and in, into our lives, but people need to hear something at different times. And, and, and I think that's, that's the, the, the lack of maturity I see in Christian entrepreneurial Christian leadership is, is as far as the sentimentalism thing, like I think that that's probably the thing that bothers me the most. Like I'm going to be nice and that's going to convince people to like believe in God. Right. I mean, I don't know anyone in scripture that, that applies to AKA zero people. Like, <laughs> yeah. Everybody was like kind of in your face because they knew they were going to die. Like, so this is a, that's a total invention of like American man that being sentimental and being nice to people is going to convince them to do anything, especially about the gospel. The second is like applying the Bible to areas of life that are completely not applicable because they're, they're trying to immaturely draw from a, you know, an appeal to authority rather than appeal to authority is the Holy Spirit that lives within you you know, don't read Revelation to me and tell me that's how I'm supposed to like do payroll, right? Like the, the and, and Wait, is that something you've seen before? No, <laughs> like, no it's people like, yeah, I mean, you just see, it's mostly like Proverbs and things like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah I mean, like certainly like because business is key in scripture, right? Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you know, like Phoebe was one of the most famous, you know, deacons in the church and she was a businesswoman, right? So right. like, I like certainly business is never 
condemned at all. You know, it's 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 part of the arc of him redeeming the created order. But right. it's, it's like it's part of the arc. It's not the point. That's why the book is not as the Bible is not a business book, right? Yeah. And so you can't literally take the discussion around taxes to be literally about taxes because the point of the Bible is not to tell you about taxes. Like, like the arc is to tell you the story of God redeeming the world, not taxes, right? And and so like the 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 misapplication, I think, of God's law to different areas of dominion that like we are responsible for is another of the massive failures of Christian leadership and like how to actually like run companies. And 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 then the last one would be like I think like in like an idealism that that this this the the Bible the reason why it is what it is, which is you know one of the most amazing rich things I've ever read in my life. Right? It doesn't. It's it's the one book that never needs to be updated, right? Because it's it's always <laughs> the best story of all time. Is is because it's it's just real. Like you know it it has every awful thing you could ever think of humans doing, and it has every great thing because that's humanity. It's a mess, right? But it's a mess that God loves. And through that love, he will redeem it into like his glory. But but it's not like it's not idealistic at all. It's actually pretty terrible. Like it and there, there's no like as an example, like in the American culture, there's a strong idolization of family. Like, which is not actually Christian, it's actually Roman, if you look at the arc of it. Like and because you know, the the Bible, both Jewish and Christian there's a key element of loving the stranger and obviously it's epitomizing Christianity, right? But the, but the point of even that transition between New and Old Testament is that Jesus comes, has no kids, right? Are Catholics. Like, no, he, like, he never <laughs> had like in Mormons, like he never had anything related to that. Like I, he, the, the, the arc of it is the fact of like that he is the transitionary period. He is the new Adam. He is the better Joseph, right? Jesus means Joseph. Like, and and is like is basically transitioning people into this new world where it doesn't matter your genetic attachment, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your last name, that you are accessible to the kingdom of God right now as you are. Like that is the promise, right? So we have this like weird application, I think, of like of within American Christendom that is misapplying things that are cultural influences versus the the purity of the gospel mm-hmm. is Romans roads is the Nicene Creed. And that's it. Like that alone is an amazing step for people to admit that there is nothing they can do to reach Jesus, to reach the Lord outside of grace. You cannot earn it. You cannot do anything to impress him. Like it's it. Just grace accepting that you're fallen and you're broken, that Jesus came and died for your sins on the cross because he is the only thing that could actually save you and that he will return. And and then instead there's all this like crap that gets put into scripture versus just like, just talk about that thing, Right. Don't tell me, you know, being a great Christian, having a great family or a great job or like your kids go to Harvard or like your number one soccer team. Like, no, that's important. I don't know how you can read Paul's story or Peter's story and be like, yeah, the most important thing is that my kid has AP classes and it gets <laughs> like, you know, a 1600 on the SAT score. Like, no, like the point is this is it, right? But it also gives you great liberty, right? That if you're doing Matthew 28, if you are living the Great Commission, you're basically like free, Right. You, you experience the liberty of God, that he loves you and he shows you this much grace that go start that company. Go do that art project, right? If you want to go, you know, I live in Boulder. If you want to go be a rock climber, professional rock climber, amazing, right? Because the liberty exists in Matthew 28. And if you live that, God will take care of everything else. So stop worrying about like, like you know, am I living the best way of, of running, you know, accounts receivable according to Proverbs. Like, like it's, it's complete, 
misunderstanding of what God is trying to tell you there, which is like, you are both loved under the King Jesus, submitting to him. In that submission, you are free as we were in Eden. That when we submitted to God, because our heart is drawn to submission, we had to submit to something. It's either God, Satan, the world, like, like we're submitting to something, right? So choose to submit to me, Lord King, and you actually are free. As the, I think it's a Spurgeon quote, right? That the cage is locked from the inside, right? Choose to like actually unlock yourself and just say, yes, I must submit to something. Like God has liberated me. And through that liberation, like you'll both know that God loves you, right? Because you can be free from like trusting in yourself that God has designed you because you're gifted for things. I'm gifted for things that only us designed to do. And, and through being like, I always like say like, everybody's a snowflake, but also everyone's made of water, right? Like everybody is special, right? But you're all the same, right? So, so all say all same kind, right? And, and that's true. Like, like where God has intended every single person for a particular mission that I'm right. not going to be good at at all and I'm not designed to do. And the only way people can know that is they trust the Holy Spirit, get beyond the purpose of like scripture, which is like to tell you the basics to get you to love God and to tell other people to love God and to live in holiness. But like, if you know, if, if your baseline understanding about how to live life is still, you have to go back and like, look what it means to be righteous then I think you're a spiritual milk and you're not eating food. Like God, you know, Paul wants you to transition, like get to food, right? Like he wrote all those letters, right? I mean, imagine like in Corinthians and in Galatians, right? And in Ephesians, he says, why do they keep repeating this stuff to you, right? So so like the, the attention is not that like, hey, you got, oh, how do I be righteous? Oh, how do I like, you know, he's like, learn something, right? So it's like, like take that literally. Isn't he saying like, why are you still doing this Corinthian church? Why, why do I need to continue to write this? You should know these things. I've literally taught this to you. Do I need to come back? Do I need to spank you, right? Like he's <laughs> saying that like, he's saying that you don't, you should not constantly need this because you have the Holy Spirit. Like just trust in the Holy Spirit, live a holy, righteous life. Like, and you should know what those basics are because it's not a long list of things, right? And, and like lean forward into God and like God will walk with you and do these amazing things. Here. I love it. And that's, I think that's a, covered a lot of ground here. And I, and so, you know, so many things that you've said are, are, I think can take to heart. I mean, one being one, one in particular being that like, like my father-in-law likes to say it this way, the Bible doesn't teach you to bake a cake, you know? And, And I think that's a really great point to kind of bring to bear is that while these principles are universal and we apply them and we need to be applying them, you know, wherever we are, that doesn't mean that yeah you're going to find you're going to find your formula for 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 making sure that your you know your accounts payables are are on time and whatnot and I yeah, think yeah. that's something that we all have to kind of wrestle with is determining how we are living out the gospel in our own life yeah, and how we're applying the principles that we learn from scripture in every aspect of our lives is a constant journey in and of itself so I've got a question mm-hmm. that we're going to kind of close off with here and it's something that I love to ask everybody who comes on the show. And that's, you know, all of this stuff, I wonder, is like, man, which one of these things that you've talked about here would be the, the thing you'd really want to tell yourself, like a younger version of yourself as you went back in time? Oh, yeah. You know, like what, what sort of wisdom would you want to give somebody like a young person who's listening now and say like, hey, of all the stuff that I've said, this is the kind of thing I want you to focus on and so on. Yeah. So I would say I would split it by genders or sexes. So... To women, it would be like, it doesn't have to be this hard. Yeah. For men, it won't be that bad. 
So it's a little bit of a, like, you know, the famous Solomon quote, right? That like, oh, how do I stay humble, right? Like how in the good times and the bad, right? And this too shall pass, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like both those things because I think it gets to like the, the nature of like both the amazing power of each sex has got designed, but also kind of like the key struggles that I think both have. So for the former, for like women who like, you know, listen to this, it's like that the natural design, you know, according to the fall is that they were naturally gifted to both be a protector, but also very critical, you know, desire for their man, right? That the word desire is also the same word for desire that drove, you know, the first murder in scripture, which is always something very interesting that like no pastor actually ever talks about, right? It's yeah. literally the same word, right? So, so that should be a warning to be like, oh, crap, how I feel, right, is not always true. And that feeling is like that, that voice, that feeling is something that's both amazing, powerful, like she draws and creates life, right? And also like creativity, art, and like attachment, and all these things that like they're very gifted at. But the you know, culture also says like princes us and like takes advantage of our strengths and turns it into something that's like a pathology. And, and I think that the, for, for women, it's like, doesn't have to be that bad. Or sorry, it doesn't have to be that hard. And, and so like, I think that's both the confidence and trust that like the future is going to be okay. And that like, it's not always up to you. And there's insecurities that we all have. And that the, and that God can meet us in that. The corollary as the beginning of that list for men is like, it won't be that bad. So it's like, is in trust that God has you and that you can take a risk. Uh, right. And that the fears that you have, the self-talk about being a failure or being alone or like kind of like the more common pathologies that men struggle with in culture almost never happen, right? right? Unless you're like a full, like, you know, ingrained, then it's going to happen yeah. anyway. So like, like yeah. you know, but most men who listen to this will be fine. Like, you know, and, but, but instead they have this like dialogue in their head. I suppose sexes do, but the dialogue in the male head, especially the, the American male head, is dominated by self-loathing uh, and fear. fear. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Manipulation, a lack of masculine, lack of courage. And, and, it, and it's a little bit bizarre because, like, get, as Dennis Berger would say, courage is the rarest form, or so it is the rarest of all human traits. And I deeply agree with that because yeah. it, it, courage is not something that is, which every man needs to be more courageous in culture, is not something that is clearly, like, kind of teachable. Is it something that you can only do as your own agency? It's sort of like trying to teach also some agency. Like as soon as you teach someone agency, you're preventing them from having agency, right? So it's like this: like I'm a beggar on bread. Just please, you know, eat the bread. Like, but you got to take the bread. Like I can't do anything mm-hmm. to help you get it. So courage and, and agency are kind of the same thing. And now, like because our culture is so dearth of like bravery, courage, chivalry, yeah, that's really well, you're, just in, you're encouraged to yeah, you're and you're literally just encouraged to not have it. Like that's that's yeah. what's so yeah, awful. So, Yes, and, and, and that creates, I think, a lot of the, obviously, the political nightmares that we're living in. Oh, yeah. Like, typically, like, men would be like, you know, I'm sure you saw the, the viral Hamas video of, sorry, the viral protests of high schoolers in San Francisco mm-hmm. supporting Hamas in Palestine. And that was, and the chant was from, from river to sea, which is a chant of the elimination of the state of Israel. So, like, that is definitionally, to me, an anti-Semitic statement. So, like, and the fact that, like, you know, in a, in a, in a pro or pro masculine culture, that would mm-hmm. never have happened in the school, right? Like, you don't even have the age to vote yet. Like, you can't drink. You can't even buy a Zen. Like, so, like, like chill out, chill the F out, go back in your classroom, <laughs> or you're going to be suspended for another month, right? And you're not going to graduate, right? And instead, it's like this, whoa, they're like expressing themselves, right? And, 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 and that's just like that. 
that is not a healthy attitude. Like the the our culture needs the word no more. Yeah. Uh, and it needs to understand that no is the reorientation of us to try to like get to reality, right? That we are not a sophistic, hyper-individualist culture that is like removed from communal interactions. Like our actions have consequences and our statements have consequences, which means that we need morals, we need standards. We need Agreed. something to guide us to to like a healthier society. And and the the heavily oriented towards like the narcissism that our inner culture is like is is like why like a lot of things I write about now are about like you know godly masculinity is because good masculinity is actually the opposite of being narcissist because you basically are as I say you're you're basically having selfless self interest right that you are looking out for yourself as an arc to actually help other people because you cannot help other people if you can't help yourself. Right. Like, like you cannot physically. And I think that there's like this weird subconscious thing in masculinity today where it's like, I need to suppress my own desires and wants because that's Christian. It's not, by the way, 100% not. Hopefully you desire Matthew 28. Right. So, okay. So repress that. Right. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's totally logical. So rather the orientation as in Philippians 2, right, is that it's to look out for other people and to predominantly first look out for yourself. Right. Because you can't do that to another person. You can't help another person if you're helpless yourself. If you're broke, how can you help somebody with money? You can't, right? If you have, you know, if you're an ingrate, you can't help another person. You literally, that's why you're called an ingrate, right? So, so there's this like not looking out for yourself, particularly for men, which which I would put as like a very short list, right? It's like have friends, eat well and work out, like read scripture and be like read stuff, right? And say what you think, like, and that's it. Just do those things, right? And you'll be like this, like. People like, oh my gosh, he's so courageous, right? It's like standards <laughs> so, so like so base, so <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, it's like, like, oh my gosh, he's so based, right? So courageous, <laughs> he's black-filled, right? Like, and and it's like it's like it's such a simple list, right? And I want men to like realize that like it just won't be that bad. It's like like, and if it and if it is, if you do have some in the relationship because you say what you want. And that was never a real relationship to begin with. So everybody right. wins. So it's like a win-win situation. But still, like they they live in fear. And which, which I'm, you know, I used to be that type of person like 15 years ago, but like I used to be that type of person. And so like I can be sympathetic to it. But now like I think culture is so hostile to any form of objective morality. Like we've, we were like, the ship has sailed in terms of like Christendom. You know, I believe in God can redeem that right. situation. But in terms of like accepting Christendom as the main stream part of our culture, it's yeah. gone. That ship is gone. Right. But now the fight is like, is there any objective reality? Right. Which is a Marxist battle, so that that that's where it's like we have to just be in a position of like, no, that's not good or real or true. I get you feel that way, but you know what? I'm not going to honor that. If you want to destroy your life, that's fine, but don't make me do something. Right? The whole like accommodation to promotion, you know, yep. spectrum. A Christian's duty is to be accepted, but I'm not going to promote anything. Right? Like that. That is an agency. That's my decision to do. So so until men in our culture decide. That they have enough is that enough. Same, yeah, <laughs> that they have the spectrum of decision making from from acceptance to promotion, and they get to choose right what they want to do. Like, uh, and and you know, even if it's not good or bad, like I don't care at this point. Just like say something of consequence, like do something of consequence, because the world needs men of consequence. And if we don't, like if the church doesn't. It's the attention is going to secular people like Joe Rogan or Andrew Tate, right? Or yep. you know Jordan Peterson to 
Depends on his. Yeah, I, I think he's a Christian. Well, but you know, it depends on his mood. <laughs> let's say. Yeah, like, which, you know, which day of the week? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Generally, it's all good stuff. But you know, yeah. what I mean? so and like that attention stuff should be going to pastors, should be going to courageous Christian men who are standing up and making you know waves in the culture, being being yeah. men of consequence. Quit being quit the influencer mentality and start being a pastor. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or at least taking that mentality. Well, Aaron, I'm so pleased that we were able to to spend so much time together. You're you're a hard man to get a hold of, dude. And, and I'm so glad that we were able to make this time. And and I know that people are going to benefit from it. Thank you for being so bold in your proclamation of the truth. It's something that I definitely appreciate, and I know others will appreciate it too. So before we go, if you have any uh, ways in which you would like to promote, like uh, for instance, the ways that you get in contact with you. Or, or see some of the things that you talk about, perhaps on Twitter or whatnot. What are, what are some of the ways that people can uh, can find out more about you and your yeah, work? Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter, which is A-G-I-N-N-T. I also write on Substack, A-G-N at Substack. And mostly write about like all of the stuff I just said. Yep. So yeah, those are the two places I spend all my time on. Well, thank you so much again, Aaron. appreciate you being here. Thanks. All right, and so this has been Faith Ventures. Thank you so much for listening in, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>